Hello everybody, this is Dan Trout of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. I have entitled this section, Purity from a New Life in Christ. Our context is this, in the first 16 verses of Ephesians 4, Paul talked about unity, unity, unity. He's continuing his theme of unity between Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. He says that that unity is obtained by the exercise of the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He now moves into this section, verses 17 through 32, and he's talking about basically practical sanctification issues. We start with verse 17, 18, and 19. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now Paul says, so, that means because of something. So, because of what? Well, I went back and looked at a few options in previous verses, because we're no longer to be children, as he says in verse 14. Not to be children, so we'll be deceived by crafty trickiness of errorist, heretics. Because we are no longer to be children, I say that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Or is it because we are to grow up into the head, which Paul mentions in verse 15. Grow up into the head. The body builds itself up and builds itself up and grows up into the head. So walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Or it could just refer to a lot of things Paul has previously said in the Ephesian letter, maybe even in chapter 4, maybe in chapter 3. But of all his, his, his exhortations, come together and say, look, if you're going to do what I'm asking you to do, you can't walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now, when he says, so this I say, that probably refers to what comes after, not what comes before. And so this is what he is saying. This is what he is saying. That this refers to this. You walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, etc., etc. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Verse 17, when he says, walk. Here is the place where Paul shifts from unity to purity. As I said, the previous section in chapter 4 was unity, 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 unity. Now he's going to talk about purity. And in fact, purity is his main focus from this verse right here in Ephesians 4:16. Well, actually, that's the previous verse. But right here at this section, all the way to chapter 5, verse 20, he's going to be talking about purity. So that's what our overarching theme is. He says, don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Futility means the worthlessness, the absolute inability to do something. Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. In other words, their speculations were worthless. They did not accomplish their purpose. Their foolish heart was darkened. Futility of the mind is exemplified by secular philosophy. That philosophy searches for the truth, but never finds it. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, The most accurate writings of their best philosophers left them entirely ignorant of the real nature of God. And I can attest to that because I've read a lot of philosophy, and the more I read, the more I realized this is a waste of my time. These people are so far off from God, they're as far as the East is from the West. That's how far from God they are. Now, pagans, now this doesn't, of course, mean the futility of their mind doesn't mean that pagans can't reason. Of course, they can do math and they can do science. And when I say science, I don't mean philosophical speculations about the origin of the world or the origin of the human species. I'm talking about repeatable experiments. They can do that pretty good. That's not what it's talking about. It's the, not their ability to know 
things about God or about the creation, but about but uh, but but knowing ultimate spiritual truth and knowing God personally, uh uh-uh. their mind is futile. Verse seventeen, Paul says the mind is darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. He closely links that darkened mind with a callous heart in the next verse, verse nineteen. This shows that the unredeemed mind will work in tandem with a callous heart. Stupidity and sensuality are close cousins. Callous heart means you just don't care about doing good, so you go out and do all kinds of things just aimed at satisfying your senses. That is very closely related to a stupid mind that does not know God. Now, I know that there are some people that are very moral on the outside who don't believe in God, but let's face it. They're arrogant, they're proud, they just manage to cover it over, as all of us do. Paul mentions the hardness of the heart in verse 18. The heart is born that way, and it gets harder and harder the longer it continues in sin, just like Pharaoh and God, when God, uh, when Pharaoh and God reciprocally hardened Pharaoh's heart, if I can put it that way. Pharaoh sinned, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in punishment, and then Pharaoh sinned some more because his heart was hard, and then God... Harden his heart some more because he sinned. Here's some scriptures showing that God judicially hardens sinners. Romans 1.24 Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. He says, okay. Now God didn't make them lust, but he says if that's what you want and you don't want to get out of it, well fine, just go right ahead and exercise your freedom and exercise your sin and start collecting the wages of death. Romans 1.26 For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. It's a nice word for lesbians. He gave them over to it. He said, I'm not going to stop you. If you want to go ahead and practice illegitimate sexual activity, well, go right ahead. I'm not going to stop it, but you're going to degrade yourself, and God's going to harden them for doing it. They do it, and then God hardens their heart because he gives them over to it. Romans 1.28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. So yes, God does harden sinners as part of their punishment, but remember, he doesn't do it arbitrarily or willy-nilly. He does it because they are asking for it. They want it. They say, I'm going to sin, and I don't care what God says. Paul talks about the heart being callous, or the sinners having become callous, those who gave themselves over to sensuality. They're callous. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, callous means senseless, shameless, and hopeless. The King James Version says, callous means past feeling, which includes the absence of hope. Well, the KGV says, these sensual people are past feeling. I like that. That's my, I, I like that translation. I remember, you know, when you play the guitar years ago, I used to, and the strings cut your fingers and they start bleeding. But once they got callous, you can't feel it. Likewise, I used to walk on hot asphalt roads when I was a kid. We didn't have to wear shoes until I was in the sixth grade. And so, and I lived in South Carolina. I was forced to wear shoes in the winter. But, you know, nine months out of the year, I didn't wear shoes. And it got to be 100 degrees on that hot asphalt with those rocks sticking up out of that asphalt. And I could walk right down the street and not feel a thing because my bottom of my feet were calloused. They looked like the bottom of a camel's foot, soot black and thick and comfortable. Those were the days, my friend. I thought they would never end. Well, that's how sensual people get. They're callous. They don't care how many people they slight, or offend, or mock, or ignore, or practice hatred towards. They don't care. They're callous. And of course, Paul says, don't do that. Ephesians 4, 20-24, but you, 
He's contrasting, of course, the the Ephesian Christians from the callous Gentiles he just talked about. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught of him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, this verse is quoted a lot by people who don't even think about it, quoted for sanctification purposes, exhortations to sanctification. But I will tell you that there is a lot of complicated theology in here, which I'm going to go over with you. It's necessary to go over because this verse has been misunderstood many, many times. Well, before we get there, though, let's start with verse 20. But you, that the NIV Study Bible says that you should be emphasized, but you, Christians at Ephesus, did not learn Christ in this way. You, Christians at Ephesus, as opposed to these callous Gentiles, if indeed you have heard him, how would they hear Jesus? Did Jesus come down there and give them a speech? No, through the preaching and teaching of the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, now, I've said many, many times in previous audios that in him should always be translated in union with him, and it's so nice to have a commentator agree with me. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that is being in vital union with him. So we have been taught in union with him. That's how you learn. You get close to Christ, and in union with Christ, you're going to learn. Just as truth is in Jesus, after all, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All right, that's verse 21. Now let's go to verse 22. That you have been taught... 22 verse 22 you have been taught verse 22 that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit now verse 22 is where the trouble starts and i'll tell you why because the old self was crucified it's gone it's dead when you got saved well if it's crucified dead and gone why would paul say lay it aside how can you lay aside something that's already dead well that really bothered me and of course there's a lot of Christians today who don't believe that the old self's crucified, I don't know how they say that. You read Romans 6, 6, which I'm going to read you in just a minute. It says plainly the old man has been crucified, the old self. Oh, by the way, old self and old man, just two different ways of translating the same thing. It's dead and gone. So why does Paul say to lay it aside? All right, now I'm going to show you that the old self was laid aside at conversion. It was not, you cannot lay it aside to affect your sanctification after conversion. And the verse I use to prove that is Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Now, what part of crucified do we not understand? Crucified means killed. You ever seen somebody crucified and come back to life again? So we've got to put that old man down again. It's crucified. How do you put down something that's already been crucified? How do you lay off something that's been crucified? Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's Romans 6.6. 6. It is impossible for something to be crucified and still alive at the same time. Now, I say that very confidently, but it's amazing how many very smart people in the body of Christ refuse to say it. Here's John Gill talking about the old self. He remains and remains alive and is the same old man he ever was in regenerate persons. Well, that's very encouraging, isn't it? Jesus crucifies the old man, and yet John Gill says he says he's the same as he ever was. That is absolute nonsense. It ain't true. I wonder if John Gill ever read Romans 6.6. 6. He's read every other verse of the Bible. He's got 5,000 trillion pages of commentary about every verse of the Bible. How does he handle Romans 6.6? 6? Let me read it again. Knowing this, that our old self was 
crucified with him. Crucified, dead. I could also read Galatians 2.20. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. What does crucified mean? It is no longer I who live. That's because the old man's dead. That's why it's no longer Paul is living. The old man, the old Paul's gone. But Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. All right, so that's the first problem with the verse. How does Paul say lay aside something that's already been laid aside? He gave you some other problems with that. Yes, the whole context is the past. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ. That's the past. I assume in the past when they were converted. How about verse 24? Put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created. And we've got the same problem in verse 24. How do you put on something which has been created in the past? Was the new self just created like a robe somewhere and put in a closet and we put it on later on 10 years after we were converted? I don't think so. So that's talking about the new, the likeness of, put on the new self which has been created. That's past. So the whole context of these five verses is in the past. So now, oh, and here's another uh, another verse that I can read in the parallel passage in Colossians. Ephesians and Colossians have a lot of things in parallel. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self in the past, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on a new self in the past, have put on, which is being renewed to a true knowledge. Now, if we were reading this in Galatians 3, 9, excuse me, Colossians 3, 9, and 10, we would have no trouble with it. But we read it in Ephesians 4, verses 20, 21, and 22, and we do have a problem. So let me show you that it's a translation problem, all right? Let me read 21 and 22 again. For indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. Verse 22, that in reference to your former life, you lay aside the old self. Now, you read it that way, it sounds like you've been taught in the past that today you're supposed to lay aside, that you lay aside the old self. Lay aside there is not in the present tense. It is an infinitive. So what if I just read this in English this way? If indeed you have heard and have been taught in him to lay aside the old self. Well, when, it, when is the laying aside of the old self? When, at the time you were taught, when you were converted. You, you've been taught to lay aside the old self. In, in English, it's not a problem. If, and remember, that is an infinitive there. So to translate it as a finite verb, I want you today in the present tense to lay aside the old self. I'm not saying it's an improper translation, but uh, it's certainly not a necessary translation, and it doesn't fit with all the other places where Paul says the old man is dead. How do you lay aside something that's already dead? Now, I've got some translations that, that back up what I'm saying here. For example, the Holman Christian Study Bible the version I just read, I didn't tell you, is the New American Standard. It says, you have been taught to lay, excuse me, you have been taught, as you have been taught, lay aside the old self. You lay aside the old self. That sounds like a present tense. Do it now in, the, in your post-converted state. But if you read the Holman Christian Study Bible, you will read it this way. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him to take off your former way of life. So there the infinitive is translated directly. You were taught to take off your former way of life. In other words, in the past, when you were taught, you were said, hey, it's gone. In order for you to get converted, lay aside that old man. You're not being taught to take off the old man now in your post-converted state in order to get sanctified. You're taught to take off the old man in your unconverted state in order to get justified. Let me give some other translations. Ephesians, well, let's see, is that the one I want? No. That's the only translation I have right there that shows that. But let me 
point out another problem here. Translating lay aside as an infinitive solves my problem very easily, but I still got another problem. If I'm trying to show that this laying off of the old man happened at conversion in the past and not in order to sanctify in the present, my other problem is this. The old self in verse 22 is is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Is being corrupted. Oh my gosh, that sounds like now. The old well, again, I have a question for you. If Paul in Romans 6, 6 and Galatians 2, 20 says that the old man is dead, I've been crucified, is dead, 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 how in the world can we put off something that's already dead? And how can it still be being corrupted since it's put off of us? It has nothing to do with us anymore. Well, again, it's all in the translation. Is being corrupted? Let me give you some English translations to show that that is not a necessary translation. Here's Ephesians 4.22 in the New American Bible, that you should put away the old self of your former way of life, corrupted through deceitful desires. In other words, corrupted, that's a past participle. I know it's a present participle in the Greek, but it was translated in English because Greek participles are not translated directly into English participles. Their semantic range is much wider. And here the New American Bible has the old self corrupted through deceitful desires. In other words, in the past it was corrupted somewhere, at, and I say it was at conversion. J.P. Green's literal translation says this, For you have put off the old man as regards the former behavior, having been corrupted. The former behavior in the past when you were unsaved, having been corrupted according to the deceitful lust. In the past. So, I'm not just blowing smoke here. I've got good authority on my side to back up this translation, which you don't, often don't see. The, most of the translations don't take it this way. Because most Christians just willy-nilly say, oh, the old man's still alive. I don't know how they handle Romans 6, 6. So let me take the New American Standard Bible and adapt it using these proper translations and show how the laying aside of the old man happened at conversion. You have heard him and have been taught in him in the past when you were Somebody was witnessing to you, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you you have been taught to lay aside the old self. You have been taught to lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted. And verse 24, and you were taught to put on the new self at the time of your corruption. So there's that's how you handle that problem. Paul continues and says in verse 23 that you, he says, uh, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What's the spirit of your mind? Well, the NIV study Bible says spirit of your mind just means the attitude of your mind. As in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me, within me. It just means your attitude. John Gill says that it's the Holy Spirit that is in your mind. So when Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he is saying, be renewed by the Holy Spirit who is in your mind. Well, maybe. I tend to doubt that. I think the NIV, the NIV translation, the attitude of your mind, sounds a little bit better to me. To back Gill's proposition up that the renewing of the mind is, is the Holy Spirit in your mind renewing it, he quotes Titus, or it can be quoted, Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews or makes our mind newer and newer and newer. And I, my idea is the, the spirit of your mind just might be a circumlocutory way of referring to the mind, just a rambling way, uh, an expansive way of referring 
to the mind in general because the spirit of your mind, spirit's immaterial, mind is immaterial, so he's just saying renew your immaterial self. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Renew your heart. That's basically what it means. And how do you renew the spirit of your mind? I think he explains that further in verse 24. And put on the new self. Remember, you, you. but it's not put on the new self now. You can't do that because you've already put on the new self when you were saved. So it's you were taught in the past. Let me read in verse 21. You have been taught in him, verse 24, to put on the new self. Again, it's an infinitive there. NASB translation is very misleading. You've been taught to put on the new self. So the new self is that which is renewed. Let me give you some quotes backing that up, backing up this proposition that it's the new man that's being renewed, not the old man. Why? Because the old man's already been cast off at salvation, at justification. Now, in our sanctification phase, the new man is being renewed. Here's where James Fawcett and Brown says the Greek for being renewed implies the continued renewal in the youth of the new man. In other words, the new man is born, starts out being a baby, actually, and then he's a young man, he's got to be renewed, he's got to be matured, in other words. A different Greek word implies renewal from the old state. That means a destruction of the old and a complete establishment of the new. That different Greek word, I haven't studied those Greek words, but I take Jameson Fawcett Brown's word for it. The Greek word here merely means that the new man is made is renewed over and over again, not that he changes state, but that he just becomes more and more mature. Here's another quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The Greek here, talking about in verse 24, the renewing of the old mind, of the, of the, the renewing, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, having been taught to put on the new self. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says the Greek here is different from that for renewed in Ephesians 4.23. Put on not merely a renovated nature, but a new that is altogether different nature, a changed nature. In other words, the new man is completely different from the old man. You're not just making the old man and shining him up. The old man's dead. He's crucified. You're putting on a new man. Well, you've already put on the new man at conversion. You're renewing the new man. You're not putting him on. The new self comes into being at conversion. The NIV Study Bible says this. This would have been brought into existence at his new birth. Talking about the the putting on of the new man that would have been that would have happened at the new birth according to the NIV that would have been brought into existence at his new birth according to the NIV study bible all right we go to Ephesians 4:25 therefore laying aside falsehood speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another paul is quoting zechariah 8:16 these are the things which you should do speak the truth to one another judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates speak truth Remember, Paul's already talked about truth just four verses previous in verse 21. Assuming you heard about him or were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, you were taught that the old self has been laid aside and the new self has been put on. You were taught by him of that as the truth is in Jesus. So in other words, all your teaching is in accordance with the truth. And then Paul says, okay, you were taught in truth, so now you speak truth one to another, to your neighbor. That In this context, it probably means fellow Christians, as the NIV study Bible says. It means your fellow Christian. And it must be. It's not just neighbors in general because he says, for we're members of one another. You're not a member with your pagan neighbor. You're a member with your Christian neighbor, your Christian brother and sister. For we are members of one another. Think about how stupid it would be for one member of the human body to lie to another member of a human body. Let's see your eye sees a pit full of snakes, poison ivy, scorpions, and quicksand. And the eye says to the leg, hey, there ain't anything up there. No problem. Let's keep walking. Well, that's absurd. 
because the human body always works together. Speak truth. Don't lie to your. Don't lie to anybody. You know, I just had a college professor, an old friend of mine, ask me to put something on a reference for him to get a job, which was a bald-faced lie. I mean, not a nuance, not a an interpretation, an interpretive lie. I mean, it was an explicit lie. And I said, I'm not going to do it. Well, he was going to try to come up with some way that was in accordance that comported with my quote-unquote philosophy. It's not a philosophy. It's just that you're not supposed to lie. Now, I say I'm not an absolutist about it. Like You know, the, the old example of the Nazi comes into the house and, and Corey Ten Boom has got uh, Jewish citizens in a cave under her table and with trap doors under the table. And the Nazis come in and they say, uh, where are the your Jewish neighbors that we're looking for? Well, now, if it's been me, I, if I lied about it and got away with it, I wouldn't feel guilty about it at all. I'd be trying to save them. Now, what she did, she says they're under the table, which was technically true because they were under the table under the trap door in the basement. And it fooled the guards. And there's a lot of Christians that say, well, see, there she didn't tell a lie. She told the truth. No, she didn't. She deliberately misled the Nazis. So sometimes, you know, in situations like that, and you're playing basketball, you fake left and you shoot right. Well, that's basically you ain't telling the truth to your defendant about what you're doing. I mean, no no general ever tells the opponent, I'm going to tell you the truth of what my troop movements are going to be in the morning. Well, of course not. It just means in your ordinary relations with your brothers and sisters, when there's absolutely no necessary, you know, don't lie. Now, I know some people will try to say, well, I'm not going to tell so-and-so that, say, the mother's in the hospital and her sister has just died of COVID-19 and, well, we're not going to tell her. And then she asks about the sister, we're going to evade it. Well, those are hard situations, but we're not talking about hard situations here. We're talking about people lying for their own benefit. So what I'm saying is I think that the default position is you don't lie. Now, sometimes in hard, extreme cases, and hard cases do not make good law, as the lawyers like to say. In hard cases, you might have to get in a situation where you might have to fudge the truth a little bit. But most of the time, be honest, and you'll be blessed for it. I know there's something in Chinese culture. We have never figured out what it is. But by golly, that is low on their ethical priorities. You know, it's interesting in the ancient Persians and the Achaemenid Persian Empire, or when the Zoroastrians, and at the end of that empire, the Zoroastrians were was the prevailing religion. Their number one salient moral quality was truthfulness. You tell the truth at all costs, which I thought was interesting, because they obviously did not influenced the Chinese very much. I have never seen so much. I, one time I told one of my classes, I say, I say, why, do you, why does everybody in China lie to one another? I said, you lie to your parents. You lie to your boyfriends. And this girl raises her hand. She says, that's not true. I don't lie to my boyfriend. I said, and you're lying to me now. And everybody started laughing because they knew I knew exactly. I've been there long enough to know exactly what I was talking about. I was sitting on, I, I had a student that was over, at my apartment talking to my wife and I talking to my wife and me and her mother calls and I listened to her I knew I knew enough Chinese where I could hear what she was saying and she said she was in her dorm room by herself and I said why did you tell your mama that you're not in your dorm room by yourself you're sitting here with two other people and she said well my mother said don't ever talk with foreign professors because it makes it looks bad like you're trying to beg from them and trying to get special privilege and she had all these fancy reasons i said you just lied to her and she looked at me and said so what <laughs> she, could, she, she couldn't understand why i was so morally offended by that 
Well, that ain't the way we Christians are supposed to act, folks. Speak truth one to another. We go now to Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, the NIV Study Bible says this. Christians do not lose their emotions at conversion. Well, yeah, that's true, but that still doesn't say whether it's sinful or not to be angry. And this is, of course... This verse kind of sticks out at you. What do you mean, be angry and yet do not sin? It's possible to be angry and not sin at the same time? Well, as a matter of fact, it is. How about all the Old Testament prophets? Were they angry at all the sin? Jeremiah breathing fire and brimstone on the, on, the, on the rebellious Jews that he was trying to minister to? How about the Apostle Paul railing at heretics? Galatians 5.12, I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. In other words, I wish they would be castrated. That sounds like he was angry at him, doesn't it? How about Jesus? It explicitly says that Jesus is angry. The scripture does. Mark 3, 5. After looking around at them with anger, looking around at the Pharisees, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, you notice that this anger that Jesus had toward the Pharisees was, was also accompanied with grief. He was so sad that they were sinning. Now, that's something that's hard for us to do. You know, you can look at sin and you just get so disgusted with it like i watch lifetime true crime movies on lifetime movie network and you get so angry at the whatever purpose whatever he's doing at the particular moment <laughs> but do i feel sad that it's that way jesus was angry and sad at the same time but so he was angry and sin not because he showed grief that god's justice was being violated jesus was angry when he twice overturned the tables of the money changers and one of those times he drove the sacrificial animals out of the temple was he angry yeah he was angry so there's nothing wrong with being angry there's the anger per se in and of itself is not a sin righteous anger is perfectly okay it's anger it's okay to be angry at that which violates god's holiness and purity now i do have a dissenting opinion here from adam clark i don't agree with him but i will present it he says that this verse does not refer to righteous anger he says this quote we can never suppose that the apostle delivers this as a precept if we take the words as they stand in our version. Perhaps the sense is, take heed that you be not angry. Well, let me stop here. That's not what the verse says. The verse doesn't say, take heed that you be not angry. It says, be angry. It says exactly the opposite. Clark says, it would be very difficult even for an apostle himself to be angry and not sin. If we consider anger as implying displeasure simply, then there are a multitude of cases in which a man may be innocently, yea, laudably angry for he should be displeased with everything which is not for the glory of God and the good of mankind. But in any other sense, I don't see how the words can be safely taken. So what Clark does, he redefines anger and says, be displeased and yet do not sin. <laughs> Come on, that ain't so. Can we say that Jesus looked at those overturned tables and said, I'm displeased. I'm displeased. No, he was angry. Do not let the sun to go out on your anger because you can be righteously angry at something and just keep dwelling on it. And pretty soon the day is passing. You still have your, you still got your spirit all in a turmoil and your stomach's all knotted up. No. Once the sun goes down, let it go. Now in verse 27, Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity, which implies something interesting. The devil cannot willy-nilly cause you to sin. You've got to give him a chance. You've got to give him a foothold, a toehold. The more you sin, the easier it is for the devil to get in your life, into your spirit, or into your soul, and cause you to sin some more. And then you've got yourself into a vicious cycle that you need to get out of. Don't give the devil an opportunity. If you remain at peace and calm and don't get angry at people, then you won't give the devil an opportunity. I've got a story. There's two Chinese students I'm uh, teaching over the Internet, and one of them had a childhood friend send her 
50 ma- 100 masks from China. Now, this is the co- in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, the Wuhan coronavirus and the China coronavirus. And she gets these 100 masks from an old friend of hers. Somebody stole them. And she says she was angry because those masks had sentimental value to her. So she gets a piece of paper out and a red pen and writes some kind of imprecation on the paper, a curse on whoever it was that sold, stole those masks. And I said, well, you know what Jesus said about turning the other cheek? I don't think you should do that. We need to pray about that. And she goes, I can't pray that. I said, well, then pray that God make you willing to forgive the person. I'm not ready for that either. Next week. I said, next week means you ain't going to do it. She said, well, yeah, that's probably true. And so she, after a little while of negotiation, she finally said, I'll tell you what, I'll take the paper down with the red curses on it. I said, well, that's a start. <laughs> but she was angry, and she was having trouble with it. She brought it up. Don't let the sun go down your anger, uh, on your anger. If you if you remain angry, you will give the devil an opportunity to cause you trouble. It's just as clear as it can be. Putting a limit on righteous anger is a good safeguard. Now, of course, anger for no good reason—that's obviously a sin. This is this is righteous anger we're talking about here. In fact, in verse 31, Paul mentions that kind of bad anger that's wrong. Period. And verse 31, Ephesians 4, he says, "Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath." All bitterness, anger, and wrath be removed from you. So that kind of anger is bad. We go now to verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has needs. Who has need. Now it's interesting here. Paul says it's not good enough to stop doing something bad, stop stealing, but you also need to do something good. This idea came from Golden Tongue R to Chrysostom. Bishop of Constantinople, what is he, the 5th century, 6th century, I think he is. He's quoted in Jameson Fawcett Brown as saying that, and it's very perceptive, I think, because this verse says, hey, stop stealing. Yeah, that's good, but you got to do more than that. You need to give. Don't just stop stealing. Don't start taking. Start giving so you can share with the one who has need. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, and we'll finish it up. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. What does unwholesome mean? Well, I'll give some ideas here. Here's John Gill, quote, unsavory speech, foolish talking, light and frothy language, that which is filthy, unprofitable, noxious and nauseous, and all that is sinful, such as profane oaths, curses, and imprecations, unchaste words, angry ones, proud, haughty, and arrogant expressions, lies, perjury, etc., which may be called corrupt. John Gill's got a grasp of the English language, doesn't he? Well, that's easy enough. But there are some things that are hard to delineate, like what I call minced oaths. For example, we say darn instead of damn. We say damnable instead of damned. Have you ever noticed why I've I've learned this? If I want to get mad at something, I say, that's a damnable heretic. And nobody's going to accuse me of cussing. But if I say, that's a damned heretic, well, then somebody's going to accuse me of cussing. I don't know why. What about if you say golly? Well, that's... A minced oath for God. How about zounds? You would think that's pretty innocent, but actually, originally, that meant God's wounds were very profane and blasphemous oath. How about saying shoot, which is short for excrement, if you know what I mean? How about pee, which is short for piss? How about piss itself? Piss is in the King James. People say that all the time now. I consider that used to be coarse, unwholesome words. 
How about saying, oh, heck, when heck is polite way of saying hell. I just say Gehenna now because nobody knows what that means. And I get I get it out without offending anybody. Like, that liberal had got a chance of a snowball in Gehenna of getting the Bible right. <laughs> so, does Paul mean that? Well, you can see this is this leaves some room for doubt. Now, remember, who was that guy uh, up in the Northwest? He lost his church. He was a, one of the new Calvinists, and I can't remember his name. Probably a good thing that I don't. But he was famous for um, for preaching sermons with all kind of nasty words in them. And he was saying he had to relate to these unchurched pagans that were out there on the West Coast. Well, I agree that there's some really pagan people out there on the West Coast. And he said he wouldn't talk like that if he was talking to in a church in the South. And I'm in the South, and I said, you're doggone right, buddy. You wouldn't talk like it because we carry you out horizontally, and you wouldn't. And you wouldn't be preaching for the next month or two because it would take you that long to recover from your wounds. Now, let's say what makes this difficult. For example, some words lose their impact as time goes on. They, people, words shift their meanings as time goes on. Now, people are using the F word now so much pretty soon it's going to be like darn. And then people will think of another word. It's even worse. How about words in foreign languages? They don't have the same impact. I remember we had this... Chinese convert who was not only exhibiting constantly unregenerate behavior, she was basically uncivilized. And you walking through a subway or through a mall in China, and all of a sudden you hear this S H I T at the top of her lungs. Like, what? Because she knew it irritated us. You know, she loved to irritate people. So one day I was having a come to Jesus meeting with her. I said, Look, now, this has got to stop. I was sitting in some park, and this old man's walking by. by and she says the same word. I said, you know, not to do that. And so she looks at me and says, blankety blank. And she, I just cannot tell you how irritating this girl was. Oh, I mean, oh, she made Dennis the Menace look like Mother Teresa. So I see this old man walking by. And I'm assuming no Chinese person's listening to this audio, so they won't be offended. But I looked at that Chinese man and I said, tomato. And that girl shut up and she looked at me with fear in her eyes. And I looked at the old man again. I said, louder. I said, tomato. She said, stop it, stop it. I said, no, I'm not going to stop it. Tomato, stop it, you can't do that. Because <laughs> it was a terrible Chinese cuss word that somebody had taught me. In English, it translated, it just meant his mother's. I don't know why that's so bad, but apparently the Chinese, it, oh, they don't like it. So you see, it depends on culture, it depends on time, it depends on, on a region, geographical region, it depends on a lot of stuff. Well, this is how I solve that problem. If you are in doubt, use Paul's standard. What is this standard? In verse 29, it says, speak words that are good for edification. If the word ain't good for edification, you got doubt about it, don't use it. Will the word bring give grace to those who hear? In verse 29, he said, that's the kind of words you should speak. Words that give grace to those who hear. Will your, will your borderline words give grace to those who hear? Will they cause somebody to stumble? Well, it could be that dirty word. In other words, unwholesome words might be dirty words. They also could be slanderous, false words, saying something that's untrue about somebody. Or they could be true words, but which are nevertheless unprofitable and hurtful to speak at the present moment. For example, let's say your wife has gained some weight. You know, oh, honey, I think you're fat. Well, that's true, but you don't say it. Not if you've got any sense. Now, Paul says in verse 30, do not grieve the Spirit of God. How can you grieve the Spirit of God? Well, look at the previous verse by letting unwholesome words proceed from your mouth. Look at the next verse, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. You do that kind of stuff, that's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed, of course, means ownership. The emperor puts his his, his seal in a blob of wax, and the wax is attached to a letter that means he or, or to the decree. That means he owns that decree. It belongs to him. Ephesians 1.13, And him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit is the wax that God puts on us and says, boom, he's mine. You're sealed when? Until the day of redemption. That could be the day that you're redeemed by going to be in heaven, or it could be the resurrection day, which I think is probably what most people take it that way, and I do too. The day of redemption, you're sealed. And he says, don't let, don't have anger. And he just said, be angry and don't sin. But of course, this anger that he's talking about in verse 31 is unrighteous anger. And he says, no clamor. Then IV says, no brawling. Adam Clark says, that's loud and obstreperous speaking, brawling, railing, boisterous talk. He says, no slander in verse 31. Now, slander is listed in the midst of some very serious sins that you're not supposed to do. And that shows that slander is bad. You know, the old proverb, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's an absolute lie. Try going around and saying something untrue about a business. You'll get sued for slander. Write something that's not true about somebody. You can get sued for libel. I mean, it's legal. Sticks and stones, words can hurt you. Well, even if it's not legal, if you just say something bad about somebody, it can hurt people and mess them up forever. Forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. Notice the past tense. He has forgiven you. Our forgiveness has already been accomplished, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Now, that has implications for when we pray, Lord, forgive me. We need to remember that we're not asking Jesus to forgive us in, in the sense of justifying us and declaring us righteous before God, because that's already happened in our conversion. What we're saying is, Lord, please restore your fellowship with me. I'm sorry I did what I did. So you're not really saying, take the sin away from me. It's already been taken away. But what you're saying is, please let me look at you again without feeling remorse for what I've done. We're just restoring fellowship when we pray like that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with Ephesians chapter 4. In chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about walking in love in the first part of the chapter. We'll take that up in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.